Hi everyone, welcome back to Tug of War, a podcast where we explore the most prominent regional hegemonies throughout the world from the perspective of scholars from within each of these regions. Today, we will be looking at the power competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia within the Middle East from analyst Ibrahim Al-Asil from the Middle East Institute. Ibrahim Al-Asil was born and raised in Syria and has been in the think tank industry for several years now. Between 2012 and 2015, Al-Asil served as a fellow with the Orient Research Center in Dubai. He also led a track to strategic dialogue focusing on U.S. and GCC relations between 2016 and 2020. And between 2018 to 2019, he finished a fellowship at the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. Currently, he serves as a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in D.C. Before we get started, we also wanted to give a disclaimer on behalf of Ibrahim that the issues we are discussing today have many nuances and political and historical complexities that we do not have time to discuss all during the episode today. So he's given us an abbreviated overview of the conflicts within the Middle East that we are focusing on. Okay, let's get started. Um, so before we get really started with the interview, would you mind giving our listeners um, kind of your own overview of the regional power competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Many people, when they work on the Middle East or they discuss the Middle East, they overlook this very important uh, issue uh, and competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia that really shaped uh, the region uh, for a long time. I will say this over and over again, and I think it's very important to keep in mind that the first thing usually comes to mind when we talk about Saudi Arabia and Iran is that they are or they represent a competing branches of Islam, Sunni in Saudi Arabia and Shia in Iran. That is absolutely significant, but it is not the only reason. It's one of the easiest to look at. Uh, and understand and grasp. And that's why many people reduce a lot of conflicts to that uh, uh, dimension. Uh, Then moving on to more specific details about the regional competition, uh, especially uh, in in the last decade, uh, there have been a lot of proxy wars in in the region. We're gonna go into details uh, to discuss some of them, or at least the Yemeni and uh, the Syrian one. Uh, But Iran and Saudi Arabia supported different uh, militias representing uh, different parts of those wars, and that uh, really increased the tension between the two uh, countries. Yes, perfect. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, last August, the UAE and Bahrain signed an independent peace deal, peace deal with Israel, normalizing relations between the countries. Do you think this deal affects Saudi Arabia's role in the region, and if uh, how so? And do you believe these deals pose a direct threat to Iran's power? Um, Yes, Carly, I think it really, it affects Saudi's uh, influence in the region and the Iranian ones. It's significant agreement that would really, uh, it's probably even still too early to understand how much it will affect the Middle East, but it is, it's establishing the new Middle East as it's going to be for the next one or two decades, at least. Uh, we're seeing big shift in the map of alliances in, in the Middle East. So now Israel is getting closer to other countries uh, that had a lot of uh, mutual animosity before. And now Iran is becoming the major threat for, for, uh, for Israel. So uh, uh, to summarize my answer, 
yes, I think it affects uh, Saudi's influence and role in the region. Not Saudi is not part of the agreement, but Saudi is a very close ally to the UAE, and the UAE is part of that agreement. So you can kind of say there is uh, uh, an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel by proxy. Thank you so much for that answer. So moving on to another factor of the power dynamics, as Saudi Arabia has begun militarizing the Red Sea and expanding into the Horn of Africa over the past four years, do you believe that this has increased Saudi's power in the Middle East? Do you also predict that Iran will also begin trying to expand its power in other regions throughout the world? Yes, um, I think we'll see more uh, uh, militarization uh, of the Red Sea. And uh, Hali, we need to keep in mind uh, also when we compare the Iranian presence in the Red Sea and the Saudi presence in the Red Sea, that the Saudi presence in the Red Sea in particular is natural because Saudi has its longest borders is on the Red Sea. But Iran does not have any borders on the Red Sea. It's, it's totally in a different region. There's the whole uh, Arabia between uh, Arabia and then the Gulf, uh, uh, the Persian Gulf between uh, the Red Sea and Iran. However, Iran is trying to get more leverage uh, and that's one of the specific or the main reasons why Iran has supported the Houthis in Yemen, because it wants to increase its leverage, not only on the Strait of Hormuz, uh, where Iran is naturally there, but also on Bab el-Mandeb Strait, where Iran uh, shouldn't uh, be, uh, be there. Speaking of kind of regional involvement, how does each state's role in regional conflicts, such as the Syrian civil war and the Yemeni civil war, impact their influence in the region? Uh, let's start with the Syrian one. It started in 2011 as a nonviolence movement. Uh, the regime uh, uh, faced the protesters with brutal force. Uh, that led the conflict to start to be an armed conflict because people started initially to defend themselves and then also to attack the regime. Uh, and then that quickly became a regional civil war because Iran supported the regime and sent Hezbollah from Lebanon uh, and Saudi Arabia, Qatar uh, started and Turkey started to support the opposition. Um, and also that conflict uh, have become or has become a, a, an international one when Russia intervened uh, in 2015 uh, to support uh, the regime. Um, so, uh, both countries played a big role uh, in prolonging the, the conflict and also in, in making the conflict or increasing the sectarian element of the conflict. Because the Syrian conflict didn't start as uh, Sunni versus uh, Shia or Alawites in Syria, but the regional interference really helped exacerbate that problem uh, in the region. Uh, in in uh, in Yemen, it's kind of flipped because there Saudi Arabia is supporting the government and, uh, 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 and Iran is supporting the Houthis, uh, who are the Houthis also, this is an important nuance. They are the leadership of the organization. They are militants and radicals, but the Houthis, the Houthis themselves, the, uh, the people, they are natural part of Yemen. They will stay there. They will remain there tomorrow and after a month and after a decade. Uh, and, and any solution should take that into consideration. However, the Iranian support for the Houthis is, of course, they are using their cause, they are using uh, their grievances uh, to advance their agenda and to uh, pose a threat for Saudi Arabia. And Yemen is 
it's the natural back, uh, backyard for, uh, for Saudi Arabia. Um, but Saudi Arabia launched a war, uh, an all-out war on Yemen that didn't really achieve any political outcome that we can really talk of, and it exacerbated uh, the humanitarian catastrophe uh, in Yemen. Do you think that Saudi Arabia and Iran, when they get involved in these regions, they're trying to be the mediator of these conflicts? Is it more to keep the governments that they're um, interested in in power in both of these conflicts? They are trying to make sure that whatever outcome is there, that's number one, whatever outcome is there, that they are uh, an actor, a player, and they shape that outcome. Uh, because they realize that the, the, the region is changing a lot and everyone wants to shape the next or how the region will look like uh, in the next phase uh, to make sure they, um, uh, they protect their interests. Uh, and this is also uh, an important difference between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, they are both have a lot of human rights violations, especially when we talk about domestic. But Iran, as part of its even constitution, it wants to expand uh, uh, its influence since 1979. And that's why we see their direct presence in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, uh, in Gaza, uh, and in Lebanon. Uh, and, and that didn't really serve any of those uh, conflicts. The Saudi role in Syria was very high between 2013 and 2016. But really, it started to decrease. And now they don't really have an influence in Syria. They lost almost every leverage uh, uh, inside uh, uh, Syria. Focusing on more of like Saudi Arabia and Iran's international positions in the world, there have been reports that China and Iran will soon enter a 25-year trade and military partnership. What does this mean for Saudi and Iranian relations? And will a deal with China undermine Saudi Arabia's relationship with the U.S.? China is gonna be an important player uh, in the Middle East sooner or later. And I think it's gonna be, or its role is gonna be bigger than we would notice in the first uh, uh, phase, because that's how China operates. They do not usually start by sending military. They do not start by sending flags. They start by sending business people and building, uh, economic relations, and that's how they established their influence. So that's why we do not usually notice when China starts to be a player in one of the regions. And clearly, China is interested in the region. Uh, they are trying to make sure they build relationships with everyone. And they are also, because for China, there is an economic interest in the Middle East, and there is an interest to compete with the U.S. in the Middle East. They don't want to start again with military competition, but they want to, to offer the Middle East a different model than the U.S. has offered by saying, listen, we are not a democracy. We will never uh, issue statements about human rights violations in your country. Uh, our State Department will never say, oh, you detained or... Uh, uh, executed that journalist. We do not care about that. Build an economic relationship with us and we will help you. And that's very attractive for many governments in the Middle East. 
because they're like, oh yeah, maybe that's what we're looking for. And that's why it's very dangerous uh, because that's the model they are trying to advance. The Chinese model where they actually had uh, great achievements on the economic sphere, but very bad achievements when it comes to the political participation and democracy and the human rights. Uh, so if you look at how they are dealing with Saudi Arabia and China, you see they are uh, they are trying to build economic and uh, and political relationship, uh, and that's in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, with the UAE, with Qatar, uh, with Syria even, even with the Assad government. But it's become difficult because of the sanctions. Uh, but also with uh, with Egypt, with Israel, uh, with the Horn of Africa, they are trying to be with everyone to make sure they increase their leverage. Uh, in the future, I think they are not going to try to take sides uh, with any local conflict because that's not uh, the Chinese approach or model. Uh, again, they try to build a relationship with everyone uh, to advance their own agenda and also to fill the gap that the US, uh, the U.S. is lifting behind when it's decreasing its presence in the Middle East. That's so interesting. I never really thought about the element of China kind of offering a different model um, to countries in the Middle East. So kind of the next question is, um, you know, the, the Iranian nuclear deal is a very controversial piece of policy. How imperative do you think it is that the next U.S. administration pursue a similar deal? Additionally, how consequential was Trump's withdrawal from the deal on geopolitics in the Middle East? Let me start to talk briefly about the agreement, what I think uh, was good and what was bad. What was good is obvious is to limit uh, the Iranian nuclear ambitions uh, in a peaceful way uh, without uh, military confrontation between the US and Iran. That's absolutely great. What was bad in the deal and why it didn't survive? Because the deal overlooked many important aspects in the, uh, in the Iranian agenda. Uh, it didn't address at all uh, the uh, uh, Iranian regional aggressiveness and supporting different militias in uh, in the region. When the nuclear was when the agreement was signed, Iran was actively uh, propping up a war criminal in Syria, uh, supporting uh, uh, terrorist uh, militias in in Lebanon, in Gaza, in Yemen, uh, and in Iraq. Uh, and destabilizing those countries and making sure uh, that there is always a parallel to the government. And that's uh, something also important to keep in mind about how Iran deals with the region. Even in Syria, even where the president of Syria is totally an ally for Iran, they try to create parallel uh, institutions and militias to make sure that even if they lose the government, they have something else. That's because that's the Iranian model. That's the IRGC uh, in uh, uh, in Iran. Uh, that's Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, that's the militias in in Syria, uh, and that's how they are trying to do it. So the the negotiations uh, overlooked that element. So many actors in the regions were not in the region in the Middle East were not comfortable with the peace deal because they felt that 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 Iran supporting the militias is a bigger threat for them than the nuclear option. Number two, it didn't address uh, the ballistic missiles and that's a direct threat for Israel. Uh, so that, uh, the conclusion was that most of the US allies and partners in the region opposed 
the deal. Number three, and finally, that Obama couldn't have uh, the, uh, the deal certified by Congress because the Congress was controlled by Republicans and they didn't want to support it. And also because they thought that the, the deal really overlooked all those um, uh, aspects, uh, important aspects. So that led to almost everyone in the region to oppose the deal and many policymakers in the US to oppose the deal. So at the first opportunity, when the Republican lawmakers and uh, uh, Trump uh, and uh, uh, the US allies in the region, Saudi Arabia and Israel and uh, other Gulf countries, see, they really wanted to push to cancel the agreement. And that what happened. It was another mistake to just withdraw from it the way President Trump did. Uh, it was also, I think, bad for the US credibility. But we are where we are right now. I think for the coming administration, what could be done uh, for Biden, uh, since President Trump withdrew, it was, I think, a bad decision, but it happened. I think President Biden, when he is now his president-elect, uh, when he's in the White House, shouldn't just go back automatically to the deal. Because now the situation is totally different. We are not in 2015 anymore. Uh, we, we do not know what Iran has done in the last year for its program. Uh, there is a need for a new inspection. And we, the, the next administra administration should learn from what happened from the previous deal. They should address uh, the regional uh, aggressiveness of Iran, address the ballistic missile uh, in the negotiations, make sure the Congress certify uh, the deal. Uh, and yeah, before they go back and just tell Iran, oh, we're sorry, we'll just automatically, no, they should use the leverage now on Iran to make Iran a better player uh, in the region. So speaking of Trump, recent antagonisms between his administration and Iran have highlighted the increasingly fragile relationship between the two countries. How likely is direct conflict with Iran, if at all? And how does a potential conflict pose a threat to Iran's regional power? I do not think we will see a direct confrontation between Iran and the U.S. Uh, we still have only a uh, few days, uh, five days for Trump, and I don't think that will happen in those five days. And Democrats will definitely not go into a military confrontation uh, with Iran. But of course, that's also up to Iran, because also we do not uh, uh, know what, if, if ever Iran attacks uh, U.S. military in the region. They do not seem to be interested in doing that. They seem to be really calculating uh, the risk correctly, that if they go after that, they will lose. Um, I think for the US to launch an attack from its uh, side without uh, uh, being in self-defense, I think that would be a huge mistake too, uh, because you would just actually solidify the base for the Iranian regime, and you won't be able to, uh, uh, to topple the regime. It's really a strong regime. It has its loyal base within Iran. Uh, and uh, it won't, like, a few airstrikes won't change anything. It will just actually increase the legitimacy uh, of, uh, uh, of the regime. Um, however, I think also uh, for the next administration, it's very important that they do not just appear so soft with Iran, because Iran is not in, in a normal regime. If you just show softness, they will just 
push the lines again and again. Uh, it should have a more balanced approach, not Obama and not Trump. Do not just show them that you will sign a deal no matter what, and you will overlook anything they do in the region just for the sake of signing the deal. And you're not going to be Trump who just also uh, go uh, uh, and um, ignore diplomacy totally. It should be diplomacy. Uh, it should be, uh, but it should be a strong diplomacy, powerful one, showing that if diplomacy doesn't work, that the U.S. wouldn't hesitate to defend its interests and its allies in the region. I think that really would uh, encourage the Iranian regime to negotiate seriously with the United States. Do you think as the U.S. transitions to a new administration that the Biden administration will be harsher on Saudi Arabia's human rights record than past and current presidents? And like building off of that, like what do you think the future of U.S.-Saudi relations are? To, uh, for your first part uh, of the question, yes. I think uh, the coming administration will be uh, tougher on Saudi Arabia for the human rights violations. Uh, and I think that um, uh, that's healthy and important. Uh, its interest in the Middle East is different now. The region is still important. I, I disagree with the analysts who say it's not important. It's very important, but it's not as important or the way it was important before for the U.S. It's mainly important for its geopolitical role now and for stability and for uh, the role that oil plays uh, plays not within the needs for the U.S. energy, but for the global economy. Probably the U.S. is now more, in a, uh, uh, it has its own uh, uh, needs from energy, uh, but the, the, the U.S. needs the global economy and the global economy does not work without the energy flow from Saudi Arabia. So it needs Saudi Arabia in that sense. Uh, I, uh, but at the same time, it shouldn't be a free pass. It shouldn't be, oh, we're not gonna see if you jail journalists or if you actually uh, kidnap activists or if you do not allow any margin of freedom of expression will just let you pass. It should be a balanced one. I disagree with President Trump's approach and I also disagree with the approach that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders was suggesting, for example, to just go and put pressure on them without letting them or giving them a chance to evolve. So I'm with the pressure, but I'm also with keeping the bridge with the Saudi Arabia, because if we pressure too much, Saudi Arabia is gonna get closer to Russia and China. And if we do not pressure, Saudi Arabia will continue to be an authoritarian state. So it's that, use your leverage, keep your interest, and have a balanced approach uh, moving forward. Great, so kind of off that question, you know, as much as the United States relies on Saudi Arabia as a tool for like stability within the region, do you think that Saudi Arabia can maintain its regional hegemony um, without the United States' strong allyship? It's, it will be less uh, powerful uh, for some time for sure. Um, Saudi Arabia, its strength comes from um, it's oil for sure, it's energy, and that's very, very significant. Uh, that it has uh, some of the holy sites for Islam, the Sunni Muslims in particular, uh, Mecca and Al Medina, uh, that's also very important. And it's a big country. So if you compare them to many of their neighbors, the, the tiny 
countries like Qatar and uh, um, and Bahrain. So it has natural strength and influence in the region. That will stay there for sure. But if it's not uh, allied with the U.S., they are not. Uh, uh, the partnership is not the way uh, it is now. I think it will be less powerful. But I think gradually it will shift. It will shift towards Russia and China. Uh, so maybe it will go through some time where it will suffer, especially because most of the military equipments of Saudi Arabia are American. Uh, but I think many will move in to fill the gaps, even some of Iran's allies, because Russia and China, they are allied with uh, Iran in many different files, but also they, they care about Saudi Arabia, especially for economic reasons. Uh, and they know it's a geopolitical player that it's, it's there and it's going to be there for a long time. So it will affect its influence, but other uh, global players will come to, to support Saudi Arabia. So lastly, looking to the future, what do you believe the long-term consequences are of the power competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia in the Middle East? I'll start answering uh, this question backward. I'll start from what I think ideally the Middle East would be. Uh, I think there are four main players in the Middle East, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Israel. If these four players do not reach a point where the four of them work together, the Middle East will never be a stable region. However, we see at this point that what I just said seems impossible. But if you look at Europe uh, 75 years ago, it was in a world war, right? If you look at East Asia, uh, you will see even the 60s and the 70s. If you look at Latin America, the same. All regions, before they have a strong regional institutions, they all go through conflicts, very bloody conflicts. Usually those bloody conflicts, they lead the players in the region to realize we will either live together or we will uh, finish each other. Uh, so I think currently those four players, almost none of them is, the, is on the same page. Uh, they are engaged in zero-sum games. They still don't see that uh, they can work together and have some security structure and architecture uh, for the region. Uh, but now we are seeing that the Sunni RFCs are getting closer to Israel. I think it's easier to build a better relationship with Turkey than Iran. Iran is still a difficult question because of the nature of the Iranian regime, which started in 1979 after the revolution, a popular one, but then the Islamic part of it hijacked the, the revolution uh, and forced people to live under uh, this uh, this regime. But many of the Iranians, the normal Iranians, they want to live with peace with their neighbors. So I don't know when the Iranian regime will realize that their agenda in the, re in the region is not serving them. Sooner or later, you will have to leave Syria. So I hope at some point, which doesn't seem to be anytime soon, that the Iranian regime will start to, to become a normal regime that cares about its domestic issues and development more than this ideological uh, and radical agenda in the region. Until then, I think Iran will continue to support the Houthis in Yemen, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, the Islamic Jihad in, in Gaza, and 
the Iraqi militias also, which is also another, import, uh, another problem uh, for the region. Uh, I hope Saudi Arabia would not pursue similar uh, policy. It did at some point, not in the last couple or three years. Uh, the, probably the, uh, the human rights situation deteriorated recently in Saudi Arabia, but not its regional uh, agenda beyond Yemen. I'm now not, of course, the war of, of Yemen is a separate file, but I'm talking about Iran, Lebanon, and Syria. Uh, Saudi Arabia hasn't really been influential there because I think for, uh, with now MBS trying to consolidate power in, in Saudi Arabia, he is trying to focus more domestically uh, and on Yemen because they see it as their uh, backyard. I, Yemen could be a point where actually Iran and Saudi Arabia start to reach some compromises because they need to compromise. You cannot eradicate the Houthis and you shouldn't. You cannot eradicate uh, those who are loyal to Saudi Arabia and you shouldn't. Uh, that's a place I think where could, we should and could have a compromise there. And maybe I hope those small compromises between Saudi Arabia and Iran will start to help those two countries realize that they can actually live together and they can actually establish a new security architecture in the region where they both benefit. It's not a zero-sum game. What another great episode of Tug of War. We cannot thank Ibrahim enough for coming on to a Tug of War and sharing his insight with us when it comes to Saudi Arabia and Iran's quest for power. Please tune in to our next episode as we discuss Nigeria's fight for regional power. Thanks again for listening.